0: Welcome to the second episode of Behind the Scrubs, an original podcast series produced by UT Arlington's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. I'm Aspen Drude, manager of Conheys Center for Rural Health, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Jeff Taylor, Conheys Associate Director in the Office of Enrollment and Student Services. Hey, Jeff.
1: Aspen, how are you today?
0: I'm so good today, minus it being really icy and cold outside.
1: Yeah, actually, I'm doing this recording live from my closet. It's wonderful. It's the uh, added bonus of getting to work from home with children and barking dogs.
0: There's got to be some like good reverb in there for your recording. right?
1: You know, great acoustics. I'm (laughs) planning on recording my next album in here. It's going to be exciting. The other one is not available anywhere and never will be.
0: Is it a rap album?
1: You know me. You know my interests. You know my skills. (laughs) Uh, Skills with a Z. (laughs) By the way, on the end, not the beginning of the word. So That's
0: going to be beautiful. I can't wait for it to drop. So Jeff, who do we have today as our guest on the podcast?
1: With us today is Dr. Kyra Brown. Kyra is a health equity researcher who currently works as an assistant professor of public health and she's the director of the Maternal Child Health Equity Research Lab in the Department of Kinesiology at UT Arlington. Her research is focused on investigating social and structural factors rooted in structural gendered racism that influenced the cardiovascular and reproductive health of Black women across the life course. Dr. Brown, welcome to Behind the Scrubs.
2: Good morning.
1: How are you? Yeah, we're hanging in there. Glad you know the wonders of modern technology that we got Dr. Brown with us. We can still connect despite all of the the difficulties. So I'm I'm glad to be here and glad to hear what Dr. Brown has to say.
0: Me too. I'm super excited. So, Kyra, if you will just introduce yourself in terms of your background and tell us a little bit about you know your research. Sure. So.
2: My name is Kyra Brown, and I'm an assistant professor of public health in the Department of Kinesiology in the College of Nursing and Health Innovation at UTA. I'm also the director of the Maternal Child Health Equity Research Lab at UTA, and I do teach in UTA's Master of Public Health program and the Bachelor of Public Health program. The lab that I direct on campus is focused on really exploring the social and structural determinants of Black women's health and birth outcomes across the life course. And I bring an interdisciplinary background to that work where I have training in community psychology, public health and evaluation science. So having had a background in both academic and practice works, I try to bring all of that to the work that I do at UTA. And so with the lab, we focus on mostly the preconception health side of things, so health prior to pregnancy, and really trying to focus on what are those determinants that kind of shape more specifically cardiometabolic health among Black women and other women
1: of color, and how that connects to later birth outcomes. That sounds interesting. So I'm always curious, this is a a question I ask everybody, is how did you get to be where you are now? So what brought you into this field of public health? What was the draw? What got you into this population you're working with, this field Just all of that. What was the Kyra Brown story that led you to this point so that you could start doing this type of work?
2: So I think that's, I like the way that you put that. What's the Kyra Brown story? Growing up, actually, I think, I know we talk a lot about advocacy and activism and all of that. And actually growing up, my parents, are both educators, formally and informally. And they had us involved in a lot of just community work. And I think that's where I sort of developed my passion for advocating for change. And it it wasn't until maybe college or graduate school that I really knew that I wanted to focus that energy in health. You know, I was a psychology major, but I didn't want to go the traditional route of clinical psychology or counseling. I really wanted to work with community. And so that's how I found community psychology. But in terms of my interest in maternal and reproductive health, a lot of it comes from that lived experience of growing up and being in the community and seeing, you know, all of the issues that you see, you know, when you're engaged in community work, but also the lived experience from the maternal health thought. So my mother, when she was pregnant with me, she was on Medicaid and she also suffered from preeclampsia and she had an experience that was very similar to other Black women where... You know, they're not being listened to their clinicians and the staff but fortunately she was able to find a black OBGYN who was pretty well known in the little rock area which is where i'm from and that's who delivered me and that's something that's always resonated with me just given the research that shows that you know the survival of black babies uh, the likelihood of that survival is greater when they're cared for by black doctors As I think about you know just what that meant for me and being here and then also I have my youngest sibling who was stillborn so just kind of the lived experience of navigating infant loss within the family and you know once I got to graduate school I really started to meet other black women who had experienced similar outcomes and really learning from them you know, just seeing kind of the similarities in their stories and the types of experiences that they had. And that really just piqued my interest into investigating, okay, well, how can we really hone in on what's causing this? What's the underlying root cause? And how can we make things better? And so for my dissertation, actually, I focused on Black women who had experienced fetal or infant death and looked at their life. Basically, we did kind of a life course storyboarding where we talked about everything that they had experienced from girlhood all the way up to the current point in time. And it was, you know, there's a lot of similarities, a lot of things that are pretty consistent with what we see in the research, like exposure to chronic stress across the life course and, you know, all of those things that shape our health across our lives. So that's how I kind of came into this space. And that was about 12 years ago now which feels kind of crazy saying that out loud. (laughs) I love that for you. With everything that you see in
0: maternal health and all these unfortunate deaths why do you think that is? I know you do research I know that you you know have read a lot of articles I'm sure and studied this so it makes me curious as to why these people are not getting the same level of care that white males get, or even white females, honestly, um, in an OB setting?
2: Yeah. So I think to answer that question, you know, I want to put into context that at least in Texas, 90% of maternal deaths are preventable, which means there's a lot that we can do to fix that, right? This is not an intractable problem. And so You know, when we look at those death rates, Black women are dying at a much higher rate compared to other racial groups, particularly non-Hispanic white women. And the underlying reason for that is really, you know, thinking about the role of gendered racism, so the intersectional experience of being Black and being a woman in this society, In addition to other intersections like class and, you know, how much money you have and whether you have disability or not, all of those things factor into your lived experience and how you interact with systems, right, that may have not been built for you. And so in the maternal child health and uh, reproductive health space, we talk about weathering this wear and tear on the body. And the reproductive and health potential that's due to those chronic stressors of being exposed to structural gendered racism. And it's much bigger than racial discrimination. It's about how institutions and policies have been designed to systematically disadvantage, in this case, Black women, and how that shows up in terms of how Black women are believed when they're in the healthcare setting, when they say they're in pain or they're experiencing symptoms how they're being treated or cared for in the healthcare system, whether that's implicit bias or overt discrimination. And in other systems, you know, it's much bigger than the healthcare system of how black women tend to be disproportionately disciplined in schools and criminal justice system. And, you know, black women systematically make less than their white counterparts for the same jobs. And that's on a national level. So all of those things create this environment that is toxic to the health of black women. And then the environment also fosters behaviors and practices that systematically disadvantage black women. So that's why you see when someone is complaining about severe headache or severe pain, that they're not believed. And that's something that they've done studies on medical students who still think that black people's skin is tougher than white people's skin. And that's, you know, as of just a few years ago. So all of those things kind of work together to contribute to these avoidable differences in maternal death.
0: Do you think that it's ignorance or the lack of having a Black woman at the table, so to speak, that these system practices are the way that they are? I mean, let's be honest, I know that You know, a significant amount of Congress members, Senate members are white males and they're making choices for female bodies, which is controversial in and of itself, of course. But I'm just wondering if you think that it's just sheer ignorance and the fact that they're just like, oh, women's bodies don't matter. Or if it's, you know, really just the fact that, you know, Black women are not at the forefront. They're not at the table. I think that it's a
2: little bit more than ignorance. I do think that when you are in a position of power, you're either willing to share that power or you're not um and you're willing to either gain additional perspective or you're not. And so those are individual choices. But I also think that you make choices within a historical context. So stepping away from maybe the individual policymakers who are white men into a much larger context of just our legislative system and structure in the United States, you know, that's a historical context of maybe why it's normalized for it to be predominantly white males, you know, and need decision-making power. So I think it's an interaction. I don't think it's necessarily just either ignorance or malicious intent or, you know, any of those kind of individual level things. But all of those things, I think, work together to kind of, like I said, create that condition I do believe that it is important for Black women with lived experience to be leading the way with decision-making, either informing that decision-making or involved in that decision-making. You know, I think about this all the time with, you know, just our lawmakers and policymakers and even like our history of presidents, how lived experiences impact policy. JFK and his experience with his sister, you know, just different figures Have shown us how if you have some type of connection to a problem, more than likely that's going to impact your either support or non-support of that issue. So I think we do need more involvement of people who have lived experience, who face these issues every day, that have decision-making power,
1: um, not just relying on someone to make that decision for them. For sure. Now this is gonna be me speaking in with an ignorant question. What's the story with JFK and her and his sister? I'm um, sure I'm familiar.
2: Yeah, so and I may be missing all the details, but <laughs> his sister, she I forget which mental illness she was suffering from, but you know, experiencing his sister deal with mental health challenges, that informed a lot of policy around mental health and At that time, like deinstitutionalization, where, you know, there was a point in time we had, for lack of a a hospital institutions for people who were dealing with mental health problems. And there was a point in time, I think in the 60s, 70s, where that was dismantled. So you had this flood of people who were previously institutionalized, you know, were provided for community-based mental health services. And that had some benefits of some unintended consequences. But I think the point that, you know, that I'm making is that because of his experience with his sister, that kind of led to this interest in mental health policy.
1: And so that's where kind of that connection is. That's interesting. It's Rosemary Kennedy. i just kind of do a little quick Google well, while, you're, while you're is. doing that. And so this is interesting. So as a white male someone who looks more like these politicians and whatnot there there's a lot of education that i need and a lot of folks need and so and talking about the lived experiences and there's certain aspects everyone has individual lives right and so things that happen to you you'll therefore be more likely to advocate for because you don't want someone else to suffer or you want to help them so yeah i get that and so teaching empathy is what i want to talk about here is, is how can empathy be taught to those making the decisions we people need empathy we can agree on that and so what's the best way to teach others white males i'll say in this context about black women with maternal health what is the best way to teach empathy without putting undue burden on the black women to educate every white male? Mm -hmm. Like how, what does that look like? Cause, cause I'm, I'm one, cause I'm always like, please tell me your story. I want to hear it, but I don't want it to be like every individual be like, oh, I need your story for me to just without people feeling like they have to do it for 500 people. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. What does that look like?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think on one side of that, you know, Within this discussion of policymakers and such, I would say, like, the first part of that answer is electing people who demonstrate empathy versus, you know, the other way around of kind of retrofitting and making them care about issues is take time to elect people who care about people, regardless of who they are. And I think, too, you know, the second part of that is I think. We all have a responsibility to be anti-oppressive, anti-racist, anti-oppressive. And what that means is recognizing that we all, in some ways, support systems of oppression, regardless of what your identity is. And so the way to combat that personally is to one, recognize it, but then two, to have the intentionality. So that's a lot different than maybe relying on someone to educate you, but you taking the initiative to educate yourself and to check yourself in situations and to reflect and really be introspective in terms of how your behavior or your thinking, you know, has affected other people or just being introspective about, you know, how you choose to navigate this world and what those behaviors mean. I think that's part of the key is kind of that internal work that we all have to do right because just because you're a black person doesn't mean that you don't uphold systems of white supremacy or racism um that doesn't make you exempt so it's work that i think all of us have to do and and that can start for some people by just simply reading or immersing yourself in a non-colonial way meaning just connecting with people in a real kind of authentic way To really learn people's lives and, you know, how they go about doing what they're doing without kind of inserting yourself into that process or, you know, disrupting the environment, if that makes sense. So I think that's some maybe
1: more authentic ways to take that responsibility. And I'd say, yes, the, let's go ahead and elect people with empathy. I like that. That's that's, That's a great, that's a great campaign slogan. Let's just start there. It's really hard
0: to teach empathy. You know, people usually have it or they don't. That's one of the like emotional intelligence skills that is super difficult to build on. It is possible, but you have to be very self-aware. And Jeff, I also want to add something to your question. A lot of better schools have started teaching mindfulness from a really young age. Mm -hmm. And mindfulness tends to foster that idea of self-awareness. And I think that that's super impressive. And I, I love that idea of starting teaching mindfulness from a young age, because it does raise adults who stop and question themselves. Yeah. And I think that in today's age, like that's super necessary because you are a product of your parents or your, or your upbringing. Nurture does play a big part. So with that Just because you have racist parents or sexist parents does not mean that you yourself are going to grow up to be that way, right? It does play a part, but I think that you just have to be extra aware in that self-regulation. So I love that, Kyra. Thank you.
2: There's an activity that I do. Sometimes i speak with some of the medical students at UT Southwestern and i do this activity where it's like a, a wheel and there's 10 people they have to identify who are closest to them. And, you know, they move people kind of either farther away or closest, you know, maybe someone's mother is like the absolute closest in their kind of 10 wheel circle. And once they identify those people, I ask them to think about, okay, well, what's the level of diversity for these people that are in your ten, based on either race, based on culture, based on physical ability, based on religion, what does your inner circle look like? And if they all look like You, then I think that's something to reflect about. Or if they all look different or they look similar in some way, like whatever that means or looks like, that's one way to also reflect on are you getting other perspectives and
1: exposures to other women's experiences that are not similar to your own? Oh, that's awesome. It really is. That's something food for thought. And I want to keep chasing this particular rabbit, as it were, really kind of drilled down. I I find this all fascinating, but I do want to kind of pivot just a little bit here and tie in what we're talking about with rural settings. Our series is on rural health. And what does this look like? Everything we're talking about, the resources, empathy, the the unique ways in which people experience interactions with their physicians, what does that uh, look like or what... Additional factors should we consider when it comes to rural settings, because again, we're talking about limitations of resources. So putting that out there, how does that does that exacerbate things? Is it basically the same? What does that kind of look like, you think?
2: I think rural health prides itself on meaningful and thorough patient provider interactions because of the way that the rural health system is kind of structured as opposed to, Urban settings. So, you know, the time spent connecting with patients and clients that is a little bit more in abundance than, say, in maybe an extremely busy urban setting. And so, I do think that in the rural health context, there's opportunity to do things well, especially uh, just speaking about like rural maternal health when it comes to patient provider interactions and providing respectful care. I think that there are many ways that rural health does that well, but I also think that that mindfulness and recognizing, you know, the concepts of equity is also important. Rural communities are very diverse, despite maybe what we may initially think of when we see or think about rural communities. And in the same way as urban settings, I think that exposure and connection to other people that May not look like you that you're providing care to taking time and investing time to making sure you're providing the best care as possible not in a i'll just speak from the perspective of say you know race I'm talking about racial disparities but you know not in a colorblind way but seeing people for who they are right because we know that even though race is a social construct the experience of people is still impacted by their racial category. And I say that because a lot of times I'll hear providers say, oh, we treat everybody the same. You know, I don't care whether you, you know, X, Y, Z, we treat you the same. But we have to be careful about that, I think. And even speaking in the rural context of seeing people's diversity, because that diversity is an indicator of the lived experience that they have and maybe the types of traumas that
1: they may have, especially within, in this case, like the rural healthcare system. The treating everyone the same thing. That's one of those terms that whenever I hear anybody say it, I want them to, to camp and define it for me Yeah, because that can mean a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. Treating everyone the same could mean literally, I don't care who you are. You, everyone's getting $5. I don't care what it is. Everyone's getting five or I am treating everybody as individuals. As I'm seeing you, I am treating you to the fullest extent as possible. Those are two different things. And usually I feel like it means the first part and not the second. It means I'm just going to just scatter shoot it all. And here's everything. And you know, it, that's equality, I guess, Mm -hmm. but it's not really equity. Right, right.
0: People that say that don't necessarily understand that there's two meanings or two ways to take it. So they're like, you know, I just want you to know that I treat everyone equally. And ultimately, that's great, but equity doesn't mean treating everyone equally. It means that everybody has the same resources. It means that everybody has the same ability to do a certain thing, right? And rural communities, unfortunately, do not have equity 99% of the time. So that brings me to Kyra. What about, you know, you were talking about Black women's infant mortality rates, and so I'm curious as to how that affects the rural communities specifically.
2: Yeah. So, in general, the problem is there's not always a lot of data that's disaggregated by like rurality and race, ethnicity. But the data that is available one shows that rural women do experience higher rates of adverse maternal health outcomes. And I've seen some data that has actually been able to look at it by race and showing, you know, Black women experiencing worse outcomes as well as poor white women experiencing poor outcomes. So I think we definitely have to do a better job with the data surveillance. The reason why, just from a systematic level, we haven't invested in a robust surveillance system for rule, I think some of that kind of ties into thinking that rural is such a homogenous group, right? And and not recognizing that there is so much diversity in rural communities. And so we have to be able to capture that and see um health disparities or inequities that may be masked by just simply saying rural women or, you know, rural community. Because every rural community doesn't look the same either. So but there's definitely those issues that arise that do significantly affect rural women. And Even though there's maternity care deserts in urban areas, they're definitely, I think, more pronounced in the rural communities because of issues like distance and maybe the development, the infrastructure of the community. So the roads compounded by weather issues, right? It's, I think, a lot easier to kind of get around on the roads, say in Arlington or Dallas versus maybe somewhere else that's more rural and a roads or uh, could be a little bit more dangerous. So all of those things, I think, impact and make it a, you know, give it a, a little bit of nuance that's maybe different in urban settings.
0: For our viewers, the rural areas in Texas, over 30% of them do not have OB. So that's, you know, that's what she means when she says OB health desert. Just to clarify for some of those who aren't as familiar with rural areas, so that's why um one of the reasons why we chose Kyra for today's podcast, because we really don't get to have a lot of conversations. And like she said, there's not a lot of research out there on rural areas specifically and also in OB. So we thought it was really interesting, the work that you were doing. So moving forward from that, so what can we do as nurses, number one, and as outsiders, number two, to help this systematic problem get better? How how do we fix this as a
2: community, as a system? How do we help? I think one of the first things, kind of what bubbled up earlier, she mentioned, Jeff, was, you know, we were talking about reflection and introspection and, you know, just really being in tune with knowing who you are and, you know, striving to be better in that regard, Um really taking care of self and checking yourself whenever you need to check yourself. Uh, I think that's first and foremost, um, because you can't help anyone else if you don't focus on kind of what's going on internally, and your motivation for helping, right? So that's number one. Number two, I think that's kind of a blanket approach is with any effort that you know we might engage in is making sure that there is meaningful input and involvement by black women emphasis on involvement um, and not just input because there's a difference there because there has to be value and respect for black women's voices first and foremost if anything is going to change my philosophy is that you know if we can improve the outcomes for black women and indigenous women who also have really the two highest maternal death rates is that if we can improve the outcomes for them then we can improve for everybody so self-work value and respect black women's voices and perspectives and from there that lays the foundation for other work so getting involved with advocacy for legislation if that means texas Expansion of Medicaid and advocating for that—we need that in the healthcare system. Adopting evidence-based programs and you know adopting respectful maternal care models. There are some uh, models and practices out there that exist that you know you can follow. Some have been created by Black women, and some have been widely disseminated to ensure that there is an equitable response and process to care. So if you are a provider, you know, leaning into those types of tools that are already available. I think for those who are outside the healthcare system, really exploring the concept of health and all policies. So it's an approach where, you know, you integrate and articulate health considerations into policymaking, whether you're in housing or in sanitation. Um, It doesn't matter because all of those things impact the health of women. So you don't have to necessarily be working in maternal health. You could be working in criminal justice, but recognize implications of your work on Black maternal health. So I think those are some kind of initial things.
0: It would be really great if you could just tell us a little bit about maybe how you advocate and just give our listeners some good ideas on how they can start advocating you know we talk about how big your voice is in the community and how we need more black women at the table and the only way to get these people that are needed is to tell them how right so yeah we would love if you would tell us kind of how to advocate the
2: best avenues to take Yeah. And I'll preface this with, I'm still learning the policy and advocacy, you know, it's such a big concept, but I try not to let that stop me from doing what I can. So I'll say that to the listeners is that even if you don't know everything there is to know, that's okay. There's always some type of starting point. For me as a a researcher, I do try to leverage my research and my data to assist stakeholders in their advocacy by providing those numbers because that matters. But then also within the community, connecting with other health coalitions and organizations that are already doing advocacy work. I think that's one of like a great way to connect and to learn. So I think about like Tarrant County Health Equity Alliance, which was formerly the IFIT Health Network. The AFIA Center, they're actually having an advocacy week February 28th through March 2nd, where they'll be doing letter writing and panels and Tarrant County Birth Equity Collaborative. So there's all these different groups, these coalitions and organizations who are doing this work that you can connect. And I think starting local can be a good gateway to state and national level advocacy and kind of learning as you go up. And so I think those are some good ways to start. But then also, I think it's, I can't remember the exact website, but you know, you can always write your representative, and there's been so many new sites that have been developed now where you can just put in your zip code. it'll tell you who your representative is. You could just I think it's like te- if you go to texas.gov and think votetexas.gov, you can actually just write letters or call your representative. If there's an issue that you care about, call them up, tell them how you feel. They have to listen to you. So, that's also another way if maybe starting with a a coalition or organization is maybe a little bit too daunting at whatever stage that you're at
0: yeah i myself i'm interested in advocacy but have never been involved until now actually so i was able to get with the national rural health association They have a policy conference every year. And so next week, actually, I'll be in D.C. on Capitol Hill advocating for, you know, our our health laws. And so one of those is the expansion of Medicaid. I would love to see that happen. You know, there's others as well that are really important right now that I'm sure that you're following as well regarding maternal care. So Kyra and I actually had a conversation yesterday talking about how with the coalitions, they also sometimes send out newsletters when it's midterm election and whatnot that basically explain to you what each candidate is about and how they're going to help or affect the maternal health. So I thought that that was really interesting
1: too. So Dr. Brown, I could do this for like three hours, but I don't think they're going to let us. So as we come to a conclusion, I want to, as you do your work as public health faculty, we've talked about the importance of learning and teaching empathy for others. Everything you've said has really shown us the importance of public health knowledge and understanding for folks in the medical field. So I guess for me, as you coming from public health faculty, I'd like to give you a second to talk about the programs that you work with. If you want to tell our listeners about the Masters of Public Health or the certificates we have coming online and in ways they can educate themselves moving forward, because there's a lot of value that we're doing. And I want you to be able to kind of share that for a couple of moments here before we wrap up.
2: Sure. So we have our Bachelor of Science in Public Health which is an excellent program. We really do a good job with our students graduating, making sure they have good hands-on public health experience. We have some very strong partnerships in the community that support our students. And then with the Masters of Public Health program, we actually have the Masters of Public Health program and then it's a graduate certificate program. So if you decide not to pursue the Masters, you could take a collection of classes And so our master's program is actually designed, there's two tracks, there's urban health and epidemiology, and it's designed with the working professional in mind. So most of our students do have jobs. And so we try to tailor our courses to that. And with the certificate, for example, we have the diversity certificate and that's a collection of classes. I actually have two classes that are a part of that certificate. One's the program planning and evaluation, and urban health community needs assessment. So in then like race class and health course. And within those classes, we really talk a lot about how racism and other systems of oppression, like how can we as public health professionals combat that, whether we're talking about evaluation or designing programs, because all of that seeps into, how we design these programs and how these programs serve populations. And so how can we make sure that we're not unintentionally embedding racist values into these programs and how do we evaluate that? So it's a really good set of certificates and the program is great. And yeah, if anybody's interested, we are online at uta.edu. You can search public health and all of the programs
0: will call up. We'll have the link in the notes as well for anybody who's interested. That way they can just click on it real easily. Excellent. Okay.
1: (laughs) Awesome. Kyra, thanks for being on Behind the Scrubs.
2: Yeah, thank you. And I'll actually just one more note is that if you want to follow what the lab is doing, the MCH Research Equity Lab, we're on Instagram and Facebook under UTA MCH Equity Lab. That's our handle. And so feel free to follow us. Awesome. Love that. Thanks, Kyra. We appreciate you so much. Thank you.
1: So Aspen, what did you think about what Dr. Brown had to say?
0: Yeah, I think that Dr. Brown is just a genius. Honestly, I think that uh, all the research that she does, luckily, you know, I get to see all of that. And so looking back at when I first started in this job, you know, in the Center for Rural Health, I don't think that I recognized quite how big of a problem maternal health is in all areas, not just rural. And so hearing her talk about that just kind of like really, I think opens everybody's eyes. I think that we all have internal biases that we have to deal with. And so I really liked that the conversation kind of went into a, how do we better ourselves and how do we, you know, teach others? I loved your question on empathy.
1: Yeah. It was interesting. And it was a conversation I could have sat and listened to her talk and listened to that whole conversation for just hours. I, I don't know. I find that uh, it was it was very fascinating. I also know that as a white man coming to this conversation, there's a lot I need to learn and it's it's tough for me to relate on the maternal side or the race side as well. So there's a lot of education that I need and that a lot of us need as well, I would say. And so... For me, it's, it's a lot to chew on and a lot to reflect on, because really, it seems like the work of equity is never done, and it never really will be done. But as long as folks like Dr. Brown are out there doing her research and, and getting her voice out there, it's inspiring, and it, it shows that there's work that all of us can contribute to in our own unique way
0: yeah i definitely agree with that right i think that as long as we are pushing each other to be better and you know we're calling each other on you know when we notice things that aren't right it's 2023 right so it's time to start doing that to your friends if you don't have friends that call you on things that they don't think are right then i i think that you need to probably surround yourself with better friends that are going to make you recognize your own flaws so I really enjoyed hearing her talk and I look forward to reading more of her research in the future for sure. Well thanks again for joining us Kyra and thanks to everyone for listening to the second episode of Behind the Scrubs. You can join us each month this semester as we continue our conversation with key voices in the nursing community discussing their areas of clinical care and sharing personal experiences as professionals in that specialty. We focus on achieving better health, research in basic and applied health science, career journeys, and other issues that directly impact the nursing profession.
1: Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.
0: To keep up with UT Arlington's College of Nursing and Health Innovation and its various programs, you can visit us online or connect with us on Facebook and Twitter at UTAConHive. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
1: Bye, y'all.